I always had a particular loyalty to LSD. And I mean, that it can deeply heal psychological trauma better than anything else available. And it's so magic, and it can do all these things. And he actually said very wisely, uh, a scientist who's not a mystic is no scientist. This is Field Tripping, a podcast dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. During my time in the psychedelic landscape, I've been fortunate to join and become part of a large community of fascinating people, all of who believe in the potential of psychedelics to help address many of today's challenges, and many who have dedicated their lives to advance the power of this message. And today we welcome one of the most prevalent and important modern pioneers in the psychedelic space, Amanda Fielding. She's been called the hidden hand behind the renaissance of psychedelic science, and her contribution to global drug policy reform has been pivotal and widely acknowledged. In the 90s, Amanda founded the Beckley Foundation, a charitable trust which initiates, directs, and supports neuroscientific and clinical research into the effects of psychoactive substances on the brain, such as LSD, psilocybin, ayahuasca, DMT, and MDMA. Their research investigates new avenues for treatment in depression, anxiety, and addiction, and uses cutting-edge brain imaging technologies to examine the neurophysiological changes in altered states of consciousness. Amanda has published over 40 books, reports, and policy papers analyzing the negative consequences of the criminalization of drug use and has also laid out policy alternatives to protect public health, diminish violence, and safeguard human rights. In 2010, Amanda was featured in the Guardian's list of the bravest men and women in the history of science. Thank you so much for joining us on Field Tripping, Amanda. It's, it's a real privilege and it's, it's a real honor. So as we hop into it, the first question I have for you is, where did your interest in psychedelics and consciousness expansion come from initially? And uh, what were your first experiences with, with psychedelics? Well, actually, it came very early on in my life because I live in an amazingly isolated place. My godfather became a Buddhist monk. So from the age of kind of eight, I was deeply immersed in um, Buddhism, Hinduism, the gods and the altered states. And it was a very lonely place. So one had nothing much to do except mooch around and experience one's own consciousness. And so I became rather obsessed with consciousness and different aspects of it and different religious, spiritual expressions. And that made me leave school when I won the science prize and the nuns wouldn't give me books on Buddhism and Hinduism. So I went off traveling without any money, heading for my godfather in, in Ceylon and never got there. But had all sorts of adventures on the way. Then I came back and I somehow managed to end up with the top professor in the world, someone called Professor Zainer at All Souls in Oxford, who became my 
tutor on comparative religions. And he'd just written a book called Mysticism, Sacred and Profane. Anyway, so it was always my subject. When I was 16, I experienced cannabis. I just was amazed by the beauty of actually Ray Charles. <laughs> but, and then a few years later, I experienced LSD. And I realized, my goodness me, this is giving me the experience I've been studying all these years. And I was very impressed and fascinated by it. But at the same time, I felt without knowing how to handle it, it was rather like going to the fun fair. I didn't quite know how you, one integrated it into one's daily life. And then um, so I had a trauma by someone pouring it in my coffee to take advantage of me. Thousands of trips, he had a bottle the size of a vinegar bottle. He started something called the World Psychedelic Society or something, I forget, something like that. So that was a trauma. And then I came out of this trauma and a friend of mine suggested I went to a party in London where Ravi Shankar was playing. So I went there and then I met this amazing Dutch doctor, scientist, who actually then became my great love. And he taught me about the mechanisms underlying the changes in consciousness to do with blood in the brain, increasing blood in the brain capillaries so that more of the brain is functioning, basically, was the basis of the hypothesis. And with that came the ability to control one's behavior in expanded consciousness. And that, to me, was absolutely an amazing new step. And also it threw light on the ego, what is the ego, and have we humans become the way we are, which is basically because of our ability to talk and control our behavior. So that became my passion, trying to understand better the human condition and why we are such a mad species. And so at that point, I began to live on LSD. It was when it wasn't, it wasn't illegal. And my friend actually had made the LSD, which turned Europe on. He was a brilliant scientist. And so his LSD spread out from Ibiza across Europe. And then I suddenly realized, well, this, this is my mission in life. This is truly amazing, how it changes consciousness in such a fascinating way, how you can learn more, you can, your, your brain works better. It was a revelation to me, the change it brought about. And so for the next years, we more or less lived on LSD with gaps because you, you get used to it. And during that period, I read all the books of Freud and Reich and all sorts of studying the mind and psychoanalyzing myself with my partner in the sense that the two of us were there together. So one wasn't alone, but one wasn't doing it together. But with the use of the sugar, because our hypothesis was that when you increase the metabolism in the brain, the brain cells are very extravagant in their use of glucose. So your sugar level drops. You have hyperglycemia, which I was very familiar to because my father was a very bad diabetic. And so I found that the art of taking LSD is the art of keeping the sugar level normal 
So you get high, but you can control that increased consciousness. Our mission was to, in inverted commas, save the world. How, how do you introduce the fact that consciousness can be manipulated in this very subtle way? How does one introduce that to society so that instead of it being taboo, which it would suddenly become increasingly taboo with prohibition, how does one make the medical profession realize that this is an amazing medicine which can be used to treat all sorts of conditions that poor mankind suffers from? And so that really became my passion and my mission. And it was a really incredibly exciting time. There's so many questions I, I have uh, coming out of that. First one, what was it like, I imagine, in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, having these interest in, in Buddhism and, and Hinduism and all of these, I would say, exotic cultures, probably still relatively speaking back then, probably in a very conservative, I would imagine, household in, in England at the time. Uh, you know, was your family embracing of that? Was it, it, was, it, was it shocking? What was it kind of like? Yeah, I lived in a very unconventional household. It was at the end of a long, bumpy track on the edge of a moor. It was a Elizabethan hunting lodge surrounded by three moats with three towers. And it was completely isolated. And my parents were charming, lovely people, but they didn't have any money, so we didn't have toys, we didn't go out, we were very isolated. But there was no taboo. One could think about exactly what one liked and talked about. So it was a very free upbringing in that sense. And so, no, I wouldn't say I suffered from um, repression intellectually. I, I, when I left school at 16, I went traveling with 25 pounds in my pocket. And that doesn't get you far on either way, probably six months or something. So I was living off my wits at 16. You know, there weren't many kind of English girls traveling around the desert and all sorts of adventures. And then I, I kept that up for several years. What was it like, you know, maybe a little bit older, being part of, I guess, the 60s movement and, and the first go round with psychedelics becoming kind of a mainstream conversation and, and entering the mainstream consciousness, uh, for lack of a better word? I first took LSD when I was 22 in 1965. And so... It was just at the beginning when it was the first LSD coming to England, actually. And so it was a very exciting period. I mean, it was a wonderful period. And it was all a kind of a big joke, everything. I mean, the fact that when you walk down the street, you would be careful not to laugh in front of a policeman because maybe he'd suspect you were on something and you wouldn't know. You know, it was a very strange period. And at the same time, we were filled with the excitement of thinking this is really something important. It's rather like there was a story I read as a child about an elephant which was needed a pill and his carer couldn't get him to eat the pill. It wrapped him in a donut or this and that and every time he ate the donut and spat out the pill. So trying to get society to eat the pill and funny enough, I mean at that point London there was a lot of fun parties 
in Hyde Park. You know, there were stones and we knew those people and we could go to those parties. But we were working away at our mission, which was to understand how these compounds work in the brain, how one can uh, use them best and how one can somehow integrate them into society. That was our mission and trying to do, I was an artist, I was trying to do artworks. No one cared what you said in art. I mean, you, at that point, then, as you know, it became prohibited. But in art, you could say anything. So I kind of had exhibitions at the CIA and PS1 in New York and different places trying to express the value of realizing that altered states can have immense benefits if one learns to use them cleverly. And I was desperately looking for uh, doctors, scientists who I could work with and do research and everything. But it became increasingly difficult as the taboo became greater. I've recently started reading the book. Uh, it's called Chaos, and it's all about Charles Manson and the Tate-LaBianca murders and you know, I guess in historical legend right around then is kind of was the end of the hippie movement, was the end of the countercultural revolution. That was seemed to be the spark that created a backlash against everything that seemed to be happening vis-a-vis, you know, hippies and, and psychedelics and consciousness expansion and, and all that kind of stuff. Now, whether that's true or not is a an entirely separate question, but for me, I've always been fascinated with the '60s and early '70s and, and the entire Woodstock movement. You know, um, flower power, counterculture. What was it like watching that come to an abrupt halt? Because everything I, I think about is that optimism and excitement of that time, especially you know, for people in their late teens, early 20s, seemed palpable. You know, you can almost feel it still to this day, what it was like back then. And it seemed like it came to a crashing halt. And I was just wondering what it was like to kind of witness that firsthand. I mean, it never came to a halt for us. We carried on. I mean, it didn't really make any difference. I mean, it made a difference in one saw it as a tragedy. One thought, my goodness me, this is humanity once again making one of its terrible mistakes. I remember someone asking me, how did I value psychedelics? And I remember answering, well, I think it's improved my lifestyle by 60%. Do you know, I mean, I, I think they have the ability to give one so much. One can understand one's um, problems better and have more fun and think better and... Um, see answers quicker, I think, all of those things. And I had a rather successful way of testing whether is it is it fantasy that one thinks one thinks better on LSD or is it a reality? Well, it, in that period, the end of the 60s and early 70s, as relaxation, we were passionate Go players. I don't know if you know Go. It's the ancient Chinese game, which actually is only skill. There's no luck in it. The better player wins. It's it's seeing abstract patterns, and I found that one has a handicap system, so one knows one's levelled playing against one's opponent. I was a slightly better player than my uh, opponent, but if I was on LSD, his handicap went up by three, which meant I I won games. 
So that proved to me, uh-uh, it does make one think, see better, see, you know, intuitive pattern recognition, which is kind of basis of a lot of intelligence, was improved. What's it like now watching, you know, everything you've worked for over the last 30 or 40 years, coming back into the spotlight and, and being the darling science and research and mental health and consciousness expansion becoming so exciting again and so embraced? Well, one just feels we've wasted 50 years. But I mean, when I came across it, the underlying mechanisms, I'd say, then I realized this is the answer to many questions, many problems. And then I thought it would take about five years for us to get it through and get it accepted. And in fact, it took 50 years. But I always realized that the way through the taboo was to do the best science, because in a way, science has replaced religion. It's the religion of the modern age. And so if you can demonstrate the efficacy of these compounds with science, it's much more difficult to disregard them. And that is exactly what happened. But what I find rather magical about it happening is that science having kind of thrown spirituality in the rubbish heap, and I think because of that, you know, humanity's got more lost than maybe it was. Now, through the research that I've been doing, John Hopkins, other people have been doing, we've discovered that at the center of the psychedelic healing process is the mystical experience. I was speaking with someone who completed treatment in one of our field trip health locations, and she was saying that um, it was her first experience with psychedelics at more than a microdose level. And she said something that struck me, and I thought about it a lot and kind of touched on it there. Uh, she said she found the profound in everyday things while she was experiencing the ketamine. And it dawned on me that when you find the profound, when you find meaning in something, regardless of what that is, that filters out all the noise, right? It, you know, as soon as you attach meaning to something and find meaning in it, everything else becomes kind of insignificant. And in some ways, it feels like that's what psychedelics offer to some people is that you can find the profound in, in the mundane. And by doing so, you can just focus on, you know, that energy, that resonance of, of meaning and, and love and, and tune out everything else. And what it also struck me as part of that was that science is kind of discarded meeting from the conversation. There's just objective reality and, and nothing else. There's, there's no mystery. There's no meaning. There's no rationale. It just kind of is. And I've often wondered if our great kind of social and mental health malaise that we're experiencing right now is due to the fact that, you know, we've discarded meaning, we've discarded spirituality. I mean, kind of Instagram, image, all of those things have become um, the replacement that has filled the emptiness. And it breeds self-dissatisfaction in a way. And I mean, the spiritual traditions are always saying, aren't they, that you can see eternity in a grain of sand. I mean, anything can be everything. I mean, I look on the psychedelics as an amazing tool 
because they can be so different in how you use them from the microdose to the full dose. They're totally different tools, although they're doing the same thing. So they are a medicine of the soul as well as the medicine of the body and mind, which is a pretty amazing um, offering, actually. And what a human mistake to make these incredibly, on the whole, nature-given compounds to criminalize them. And, and the suffering which has come through that, millions of people who have ended up in prison or infectious diseases or, or all the other horrible ways it's caused misery for humanity. You touched on the idea that uh, psychedelics are not only medicine for the brain, but also medicine for the soul, which I entirely agree with. I walk into so many of the investor conversations, which I'm sure now you're privy to quite a bit um, through your work with Beckley, SciTech and, and Beckley, and, and the conversations uh, almost always turn on the science. You know, you, you're talking to these hyper-rationalists who, you know, have no interest in discussing the mystical elements of it. They're just curious to know what receptors it hits and, and the binding constants and all this kind of stuff. And I sit there and I'm like... You know, deep down, I think most of these people know the conversation has to get out of just the objective and the scientific, and we need to start to embrace the conversation around the mystical and the spiritual, because I really think that's that's what's happening personally. But it's just kind of frustrating because you kind of have to do this dance of speaking their language and only their language slowly but surely, you know, I think eventually people people's eyes are going to be opened and, and everything that they've been missed is going to start to come to light, which is kind of what's exciting, but it's also a little bit frustrating because it's like, do we have to play this game? Can't we just get to the end, end state? I mean, in a way, the science is a tool, isn't it, to open the genie box and let it out. Now it's got locked away. And it's such a tragedy to lock it away. I always had a particular loyalty to LSD, and I was a friend of Robert Hoffman, and I promised him I'd respectalize his child, his problem child, and get it recognized as what it is, which is the magic ingredient. And, I mean, that it can deeply heal psychological trauma better than anything else available that I think we'll find that it's extremely valuable in helping treat or heal degenerative illnesses in time. I'm just beginning to work in this area and I can see immense possibilities. And then there's the spiritual cell aspect. It's rather hard to believe that this fungi, which you come across, you know, fallen by accident, clever Albert Hoffman, fell upon it. And it's so magic, and it can do all these things. And he actually said very wisely, uh, a scientist who's not a mystic is no scientist. There has been much debate and discussion amongst philosophers as to whether the soul is entwined in the body, is created by the body, or creates the body. A simple look at physics suggests it must be the latter, just as matter is nothing more than the condensation of energy into atoms, 
so too it seems that the body is simply the embodiment of the condensation of the soul. But at the end, the real question is, does it really matter? As Tom Robbins writes, if you need to visualize the soul, think of it as a cross between a wolf howl, a photon, and a dribble of dark molasses. But what it really is, as near as I can tell, is a packet of information. It's a program, a piece of hyperspatial software designed to explicitly interface with the mystery. Not a mystery, mind you, the mystery. The one that can never be solved. Let's say you've inflated your soul to the size of a beach ball, and it's soaking into the mystery like wine into a mattress. What have you accomplished? Well, long term, you may have prepared yourself for a successful metamorphosis. An almost inconceivable transformation to be precipitated by your death or by some great worldwide eschatological whoop jamboree. You may have, no one can say for sure. More immediately, by waxing soulful, you have granted yourself the possibility of ecstatic participation in what the ancients considered a divinely animated universe. And on a day-to-day -day basis, folks, it doesn't get better than that. You mentioned that psychedelics and, and kind of the psychedelic renaissance, at least you thought in the 60s, and, and maybe it's true to this day, would help it answer, you know, a lot of questions and a, and a lot of uh, humanity's problems. And that's something I hear a lot of, and people talk about it, and it's something that I gravitate towards too and believe, but it's also something that gets left in that very highbrow, open-ended, oh, this is going to solve a lot of problems, but we don't really kind of touch on exactly what problems and, and how it's going to solve them. So just curious to know, you know, if you can translate that into something a little bit more tangible. I think it deepens awareness. And ever since the 60s, I've been longing to know what are the mechanisms underlying it to bring about these changes. So when brain imaging started to evolve in the 90s, that's when I realized, well, I, I'm not having much success convincing the world that we should you know, embrace these psychedelics and um, make use of them. So maybe I should do the science, which will bring about the change. And so I better become a foundation and funny enough, it was a very clever trick. It's sort of like a Trojan horse getting climbing into the wooden Trojan horse. Suddenly, I wasn't me. I, as my poor husband later said, he married a person and then found she had a, <laughs> had a foundation. But I managed to get the leading scientists in the field on my advisory board. So that suddenly gave me a status. And from there... I could start, I started giving very exclusive seminars in the House of Lords in, in London. And so people from around the world, the head of um, Putin's best friend and the, whatever he was, the chair or director, NIDA and the Home Secretary, they all wanted to come to these seminars I organized about really my aim was to teach people what a gift cannabis and the psychedelics are. They shouldn't be criminalized. They should be respected and uh, regulated. And, um, um, and that's what I still think, you know. I think they should be 
respected for their incredible gifts they are. The governments should make the purest compounds and make them available for those who use them safely and obviously for medicine. And, and you tried trepanation. I'm sure you've talked at, at length about it, but uh, curious to know what the experience was, was like. I think what it does is give back to the brain contents the full pulsation that you have in childhood. And I think it's a very, very slight difference. You know, if you say uh, psychedelic is, if the adult is at the level of 30 and psychedelics is 100, trepanation is 35 or something. It's a little tiny lift. But strangely, it's been recognized by our ancestors from the Stone Age onwards. And all around the world, in unconnected communities, they've trepanned. They've got trepanned in Japan. And very often it was the priest cast or the shaman or those ones who took the psychedelic, psychoactive compounds who went through the procedure. And because I think they recognized, obviously they didn't have a scientific explanation of it, but they recognized that it was um, something. Now that I've kind of helped get psychedelics on the road to acceptance. I very much want to do scientific work research into um, what are the underlying um, mechanisms. And indeed, if there are underlying mechanisms, maybe it's all uh, placebo. And it's such a small difference. One can never be sure if it's placebo. It wouldn't amaze me at all if it was placebo. But I have to say that still now, 50 years later, I'm interested enough to find out how it works. To um, I'm really, really going to do this research now. But it's, it's actually much more difficult. I mean, it took me 25 years to research LSD. I hope it won't be another 25 years to research termination. <laughs> if it does bring about the very subtle change, I think it does. It's an advantage not to be snooted at. Because I think it gives you a little bit more energy. And I've actually lived with uh, two partners, both of whom I knew before and after their trepanation. And in both, I saw a terror, very slight, subtle improvement. And it's a kind of loose thing of the internal mechanism. I think it's a loose thing of the ego mechanism, actually. It's, it's loose thing, that grip, which kind of is strangulating from in some way. One of my frustration points with psychedelics and, and what's happening right now is that, um, you know, you need an indication. You need to be depressed or anxious or have PTSD in order to be able to participate in, in most either psychedelic research or even with ketamine. That's not the fault of the compound or the fault of many human beings. I mean, I came across psychedelics in the course of my life. And luckily, I grew up in an isolated place and I had a father who told me, whatever the government tells you, always do the opposite. <laughs> and that in good stead. And I didn't, you know, not don't take seriously the authorities. Who says the authorities have a better 
grip on reality than one has. So if one believes one's own grip on reality is better, one should follow one's instincts. And um, I don't think it should only be available as a medical um, thing. I think it should also be available for inspiration, self-exploratory. The comment from your father is something that resonates with me uh, quite a bit in my own kind of path to self-discovery. I recently realized I had this kind of innate recognition that as I looked at Justin Trudeau, who is the Prime Minister of Canada, whom I actually have quite a amount of respect for, I realized, who is he to tell me how to live my life? You know, I respect him. I think he's probably a very decent guy and, and well-intentioned, but doesn't mean he has any more knowledge or is any more aware or is any more informed than I may be, especially for what is relevant for my life. So, you know, why, why do we give so much control over our lives to, to governments? Uh, it really is a, a question I've, I've now been pondering. And governments are very fascinating because they're really external projections of the internal ego and they can cause a lot of harm both inside the body and outside the body. But still, to a certain degree, there's too many of us to live without a government probably. Yeah, that's kind of the inherent struggle between, I think, psychedelics and modern society, which is, I think, psychedelics gives people a path to question a lot of authority and question a lot of assumptions, question a lot of taboos. And that doesn't fit with a, a system of regulation and governance. And, and so my guess is, well, I, I don't think it's a guess. I think it's pretty well established that the concern around psychedelics wasn't about self-harm or anything along those lines in the 60s. It was about challenging the status quo and, and questioning authority and, and the government systems. Exactly. It makes people disobedient to the laws, the kind of inferior laws in terms of the government. I basically think that when sensibly used, psychedelics can be a um, paradigm shift for humanity. And in a way, I, I think maybe this horrible, terrible pandemic, which is exaggerating all that is uh, threatening, society. Hopefully maybe good will come out of it, which will be the realization that we are slightly slipping slipping into a precipice, that, that mental health is getting worse and worse. And we need some new way of healing ourselves. And I think the very clever common sense way of using psychedelics, which doesn't precluded only to, limited only to medicine, they can be a wonderful uh, healing for humanity. It's interesting. I mean, one of the things that I'm so excited about uh, as a result of the psychedelic renaissance, and, and I want to ask you your opinion about what you see happening right now and, and how things are evolving today and, and what's happening. But um, for me, the potential of psychedelics is is significant but the bigger potential of psychedelics is if it just gets people to open themselves up to being proactive about their mental and emotional health and well-being as opposed to reactive because most people do it reactively we go see a therapist or a psychiatrist when we're depressed when we're anxious when you know we experience trauma as opposed to treating it like 
physical fitness, we all know that going to the gym and staying physically fit and strong makes us happier, helps us live longer, you know, keeps us healthier. Uh, and we do that on a proactive basis. Not all of us, but we know we should. People don't think about their mental health that way. And if psychedelics become the stepping stone such that people think that approaching and thinking about their mental and emotional health and well-being is fun or useful or meaningful or improves the quality of their lives, that alone is going to have a massive shift on humanity. Now, I think psychedelics can greatly amplify that, but it's not actually in my mind necessary for psychedelics to be part of that conversation. Uh, it's just pretty cool that they are. I mean, they're like the telescope or the microscope to the human soul. And I think what is wonderful, we, in a way, passed the point, I think now, of demonstrating that they do have value. And the next problem to solve is providing access to people to have these experiences and have this treatment both as medicine and as enhancement. How do you feel about what's happening right now uh, with the emergence of a, a psychedelic industry? You know, I see, unfortunately, and I think it's one of the biggest risks to the renaissance that we're experiencing right now is just a factionalization of everything that's happening. You have the psychedelic, I'll call them purists, or the community who thinks anything even remotely approximating capitalism or, or profit motive uh, is, you know, destructive and contrary to psychedelic principles. You have companies emerging that are very much capitalist, purely focused on the scientific rigor and almost to the exclusion of the mystical. And then you have kind of the camps in the middle. Um, but as far as I recall, you know, I think a lot of what we're experiencing right now has been uh, made possible uh, explicitly by by your work uh, that you've done directly and and through Beckley and um, from what I understood you know much of what has become Compass Pathways was a result of the research that you were helping fund. Compass Pathways is based on our research. We did it center I set up Beckley Imperial Research Center where we used psilocybin to investigate whether it could help treat depression. And we just did a very small study, which ended up being about 15 people. And it showed amazingly positive results, a 67% success rate, which dropped, obviously, as the months passed. So I funded it to the cost of £35,000, because I funded everything on pittance, because I only had pittance. So in those days, People were very willing to take my pittance because then uh, together we worked and got good papers and that was good for careers, etc. I think ideally one should face it ethically. I mean, the whole thing about psychedelics is, is increasing mindfulness, compassion and all of those things. So ideally people who get into the psychedelic industry will follow ethical pathways to make whatever the dream they have come true. And it absolutely isn't for everyone. And, you know, a lot of people, majority of people are perfectly happy. I've had the 
privilege of of meeting most of the people uh, doing the work and in what we're experiencing now between you and and Rock and Cosmo and everyone at Beckley, uh, who I genuinely admire. Uh, I think you are wonderful people. Um, I've had the privilege of having great conversations with Rick Doblin and all the work he's doing at Maps. You know, even though they have received a negative reputation and maybe some of it earned, you know, even the people at Compass Pathways and a tie, you know, when I speak to them, they seem genuinely motivated by the right intentions, uh, at least as, as far as I can tell. And even though I know a lot of people within the psychedelic community are concerned about the for-profit motive entering the space and concerns about ethical versus unethical capitalism, the place I keep coming back to is that you can't help but be touched by psychedelics that people who have experiences with psychedelics you know in a controlled and thoughtful environment will be touched by them they will be moved by them they will be they will see something that they hadn't seen before uh, and even if it only moves them by half a percent or 10% or 100% it's going to move everybody and so while i'm usually reticent to say that the means justify the ends my children say Mom. If suddenly she got disillusioned with psychedelics, I sometimes am disillusioned, you know, with whatever. But on the whole, I think, my goodness me, what a gift. What a gift they are. And clever old Albert for discovering LSD by accident. And of course, our ancestors knew their value all, all the way along. It's just that we are kind of blind and rather stupid that we you know, made all the great unnecessary hurdles. And I, I think, you know, however people move the game forward, so long as they move the game forward, that's great. And I think the game is moving forward very, very rapidly. And I think it's got too far for it to be put back in the box again. So um, I hope it will start a new chapter for humanity where we have a slightly wider vision. I must say I'm very grateful that I was a lucky one to get getting to know how to use psychedelics at a very young age, right at the beginning of the whole thing. So I've had, whatever it is, 50 years of using them with knowledge. I will take this opportunity to A, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, B, thank you for all the work uh, that you've persevered through uh, over over your career. It has uh, inevitably made this moment and this conversation possible. So uh, please accept my personal gratitude for, for you and everything you've done and, and your family, uh, who I said, you know, I, I genuinely appreciate and admire. Absolutely. Well, very nice talking to you. I came away from the conversation with Amanda with some great insights. Here are just a few. First, as Amanda said, a scientist who's not also a mystic is not a scientist. I've been increasingly coming to the conclusion that one of the causes of the global mental health malaise we are experiencing is a result of our loss of a connection to spirituality, to mystery, to meaning. Too often science tends to discard wonder and the profound in the name of objectivity, but that comes at a cost. 
and it's not altogether clear to me that this so-called scientific view is accurate. The future, I believe, belongs to scientists who embrace both knowledge and mystery. As Einstein said, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift and the rational mind a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. Second, much like Rick Doblin, Amanda demonstrates the perseverance of few others. Her passion and commitment to continue to pursue something she believed so passionately in resonates on the energy of love and meaning. And to me, those are the energies that will lift each of us and the entire world to new levels. Amanda's career and commitment to her cause is emblematic of what it really means to make love's day. Finally, Amanda's comments about finding the infinite in a grain of sand. There is so much truth in this, and it all leads back to the theme of mystery in this episode. As Tom Robbins said, Funny how we think of romance as always involving two, when the romance of solitude can be ever so much more delicious and intense. Alone, the world offers itself freely to us. To be unmasked, it has no choice. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping, a podcast dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy and produced by Conrad Page. Our researcher is Sharon Bella. Special thanks to Quill, and of course, many thanks to Amanda for joining me today. To learn more about Amanda and her work, visit beckleyfoundation.org. Finally, subscribe to our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm.